The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Now, from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. The bill I'm about to sign is not just about today, it's about tomorrow. It's about delivering progress and prosperity to American families. Starting this fall, you're going to be able to go into a pharmacy and buy hearing aids over the counter. That means a lot cheaper hearing aids. Bloomberg Sound On. Politics, policy, and perspective. From D.C.'s top names. Today offers further proof that the soul of America is vibrant, the future of America is bright. This is our great task, and we will prevail. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Bill Gates, Larry Summers, who didn't play a role in getting this major tax energy prescription drug pricing bill across the finish line. We're going to talk today with Jen DeLui at Bloomberg News, who, uh, along with a colleague, broke a big story detailing everything that happened, uh, including Bill Gates's role in winning over Joe Manchin. Uh, I am not Bill Gates. I am not Joe Matthew. I'm Jack Fitzpatrick from Bloomberg Government, stepping in today, uh, hosting in Joe Matthew's stead. We're going to talk to Congressman Adrian Smith, Republican from Nebraska, about what it is Republicans want to accomplish on economic policy in the next Congress. Or is the next Congress two years of uh, just trying to stop President Biden. We've also got Roger Fisk, Obama administration alum over at New Day Strategy, uh, joining us along with Bloomberg Politics contributor Rick Davis. On the phone now joining us is Congressman Adrian Smith, Republican from Nebraska. Congressman, uh, I understand you are one of the top people to talk to. Uh, for one reason, you're, you're gunning for the top spot in the next Congress on the Ways and Means Committee, I believe. Uh, I, I have one big, broad question for someone like you. Uh, as we hear of the expectations of a Republican Congress in the 118th Congress. Uh, should we be looking for Republicans to try to just stop President Biden at every opportunity? Or are there fiscal uh, economic priorities that are feasible, uh, accomplishments that Republicans uh, can actually anticipate if they take the House? What, what are you uh, gunning for on fiscal policy in the next Congress? Well, it's always easy to just state, state what the problems are, not uh, focus on solutions. So we really need to focus on solutions, whether we have the White House or not. Uh, I think ultimately we need to put pressure on President Biden, who uh, claimed to, to be a centrist and open to Republican ideas. Let's give him uh, that opportunity. Uh, but I think, you know, when it looks to, you know, the, the barriers, when it comes to the barriers of getting people back into the workforce, we have these shortages, uh, the workforce shortages that lead to the supply chain shortages, uh, all of these things leading to inflation. There are so many things that uh, that we need to we can focus on. I think we literally can focus on these things to help get our economy back on track. Is there a proposal that you think would be realistic that Republicans in the Biden administration would uh, potentially agree on on getting people back into the workforce? I think so. When you look at some of the federal programs that we have, these uh, taxpayer dollars are going to places that uh, I think a lot of reasonable people uh, would say, hey, we can do better than that. And, you know, focus on uh, folks who need it the most, but also uh, to get folks uh, into a plan 
uh, of, of returning to self-sufficiency rather than just remaining on the sidelines of our economy. Um, so if that's an option for working together with the Biden administration, I, I do have to admit there's one thing in particular I'm curious about that seems like a, a potential standoff. There is going to be a debt limit deadline next year. Uh, Bipartisan Policy Center estimates that deadline is going to come up around the third quarter of next calendar year. I'm curious if, uh, it, looking back to 2011, the debt limit standoff between Republicans who had taken Congress and the Obama administration, are, are we going to see Republicans? Republicans use that deadline to try to demand uh, some something on the economy from the Biden administration? Is that a point of leverage? Well, I think it's important to, to realize, you know, what can we do that's reasonable and effective uh, that, uh, that can get us headed in the right direction? We won't get everything we want right away. But I also think it's important that, that the president understand that, you know, we, we cannot just continue uh, without making any changes whatsoever, continue in the direction of this spending that I think has been very problematic. The American people expect us uh, uh, to to get that under control. But again, that won't be all. That won't. Uh, we won't be able to address all of that with one vote. Uh, with the, the the debt ceiling, I, th- I think it's very important that we as legislators uh, keep in mind that we don't want innocent people to be harmed uh, with an impasse in Washington. And, uh, you know, I've seen it happen in in the past where people who have done everything they were supposed to do to save for the future, plan for the future, that uh, their their 401k, for example, uh, would would see a decrease in value because of of some bickering in Washington that I think uh, has been avoidable in the past. Let's make sure we keep our eye uh, and keep our focus uh, moving forward now with strategy to to make the right reforms but also not do damage to innocent folks. Well, that's an, an interesting answer, and your hesitance to uh, pick huge fights that could damage the economy, I, I think is that's an important topic. Uh, I'm also curious about uh, the presumed stopgap measure that's going to be needed to fund the government uh, as of September 30th. I know the Freedom Caucus members in the House uh, are, are saying, extend that, don't take a, a, a funding, a government funding deal, even in the lame duck session. Uh, what do you think about that strategy that the Freedom Caucus members are, are raising, saying we should just use a stopgap measure to freeze government funding uh, well into next year? Well, the, the continuing resolutions can be frustrating, and, and a lot of stakeholders offer good reasons why we should avoid this. But I, I do think that the dynamics as we head into the election, you know, it, it makes me nervous what uh, the, the far left and their priorities have been. You know, so there's there's no telling what they would put into an appropriations process that they would have the votes for right now. But really, as we head into the, the November election and ultimately, I, I hope, a, a new majority in the House, uh, there there are things that we we need to get done that the American people also expect us to get done uh, that are, are very inconsistent with what the, the Pelosi priorities are right now.
Is is the IRS one of those areas? I, I understand Republicans are talking a lot about uh, the number of the 87,000 IRS uh, employees that they're planning to hire under this uh, just signed into law uh, bill. Uh, what is the plan on the Republican side? Is there going to be a proposal to take that money back? Is there going to be a proposal to shift priorities from enforcement to customer service? What can we look for from Republicans who I know are, are not happy about the IRS provisions in this recently enacted law? Right. I, I think we could drastically reduce the number of funds, the amount of funds going to the IRS, but definitely start with customer service. This is a fundamental situation. You know, right now, what is it? One in 10 phone calls are answered at the IRS. And, you know, people, people, they don't want to deal with the hassles of the bureaucratic tax code and, and these agencies. They want to get it done. Let, let's let's uh, allow them to do that. But we need to provide some customer service. And uh, so I think there's some interest in that. But uh, ultimately, you know, the numbers being what they are, and the Democrats are trying to say that the middle class won't uh, face more audits. It, it's impossible, given the language of the legislation and the realities of how these agencies and bureaucracies work, you know, going back to the 2010 levels of, of audits uh, alone, which would be inclusive here, uh, we would see a lot, a lot of folks in the middle class being audited. And keep in mind, this this would include folks who already paid what they owed, but they would incur a huge expense to once again prove it. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, uh, speaking of that bill, uh, are, are you and our Republicans in any way encouraged? I, I know there's a, a million things in that bill that you don't like, but according to the CBO, it, it would it, their unofficial score. This would reduce the deficit by about three hundred billion dollars over the next decade. Do you see uh, anything positive in what we've seen in the deficit coming down from those extremely high peaks of recent years? Is, is there a silver lining on it from Republicans' perspective on the deficit? Well, I, I'm open to various ideas to reduce the deficit, but I, you know, the Democrats are claiming that adding all these auditors at the IRS will all of a sudden generate more revenue to the government. I, I hesitate to think that those numbers are will actually be what uh, is is projected. So I'm mm-hmm. I'm just uh, <laughs> hesitant in, in many ways to say that you know raising taxes and spending more money will lead to will lead to a reduction in the deficit. Right. When we talk about the deficit, one, I think, big picture uh, question facing Republicans is to what extent they go for the, I guess, Paul Ryan approach of focusing on Social Security, focusing on Medicare, the big mandatory spending issues that are projected to increase uh, into the foreseeable future versus the discretionary stuff. Do you have a stance on if Republicans take control, should the focus be limiting uh, funding for your usual government agencies, or does there need to be some sort of big entitlement project? Well, when you look at uh, the drivers of our debt and our deficits, uh, it, it is the mandatory side of, of funding. The discretionary, which we've had a lot of debates about over the last several years, and I think we, when we had the majority before, we actually moved the needle on the discretionary side, but that didn't really impact the, the, the debt and deficits like we need to uh, address. So the mandatory side, yes. I think when you look at offering seniors within Medicare, for example, Medicare Advantage and seniors having more choices, there is evidence that that actually drives down the cost of health care. So, so I think I see this as an opportunity for the future to uh, 
employ more of these concepts across Medicare so that seniors have choices, the care is available, providers uh, feel like they've, they, uh, their perspective is valued and, and can engage in this process rather than just a standard fee for service that I know the Democrats want everyone to receive uh, health care through the standard fee for service that I, I don't think uh, they would like the results of that. Right. In our last 20 seconds, are you touching a political third rail by saying that, though? Well, I, I mean, when you look at the popularity of Medicare Advantage among the mm-hmm. seniors who have it, mm-hmm. I think it's a great example where choices for individuals lead to cost savings and consumers in general are better served by that, especially as it relates to the future of our country in a fiscal manner. Thank you so much, Congressman. It's Congressman Adrian Smith, Republican of Nebraska, on a wide variety of uh, economic issues and where the Republican Party stands on them. We're going to go to the panel next, Roger Fisk and Rick Davis. And, of course, we're talking later to Jen DeLuey about that big story on Bill Gates's role in this major bill. I'm Jack Fitzpatrick. This is Bloomberg. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On on Bloomberg Radio. Republicans are not fans of the IRS components of this major tax, energy, and drug pricing bill that President Biden just signed into law at about 4 p.m. today. You heard it from Congressman Adrian Smith. I'm Jack Fitzpatrick from Bloomberg Government, stepping in today for Joe Matthew. Let's bring in the panel. Today we've got Roger Fisk, the Obama campaign and administration alum who's at uh, the president of New Day Strategy. And, of course, we've got Rick Davis, Bloomberg Politics contributor. Guys, happy to have you on. I, I want to go back to a couple points that Congressman Smith made. Uh, he stands out as, I, I think, a pretty 
level-headed person. He he does not want Republicans to pick a major fight over the debt limit next year, uh, even if they win control of the House and or Senate. Uh, that seems to be a, a difference that he has with some uh, maybe Freedom Caucus members and a difference uh, compared to uh, if you look at the Obama years. I, I'm, I'm curious how much of a, a redux of the Obama versus the Freedom Caucus uh, fights we can expect from President Biden uh, if Republicans do have a big year. Uh, Roger, I'm curious what you make of, of that answer uh, and what we should expect if Republicans do win the House and or Senate. How much of a, a showdown should we be expecting on uh, economic issues and how explosive does it get on something like the debt limit? Well, first off, Jack, thank you so much for having me. And I love being on with Rick. And congratulations on an, an, a, a very level-headed, to use your term, conversation with Congressman Smith. I found myself somewhat nostalgic for the late 90s and the early 00s when I was just a shiny, uh, optimistic Senate staffer. And I never would have thought back then during the Clinton impeachment and things like that, that that would be somewhat of a collegial time in, in uh, on the Hill compared to where we are now. But... First off, it, 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 it's you use the word if it is. A, it is increasingly every day. It's becoming more of an if that the Republicans will take, especially the House. I think their their chances of taking the Senate are, are, are fading actually quite quickly. Um, but, you know, you don't need to look any further than what they're already saying um, in terms of the, the confrontational approach that they're going to take to the to President Biden. And then, as we all know, the uh, debt ceiling and things like that are, are very uh, almost ritualistic in their posturing and things like that. So that's a long way of saying, yes, we can expect that. And I think we can expect it with an extra dose of hot sauce on it, should the Republicans take control of especially the House. That That is not a terribly surprising answer, I, and I think it's fair to put this in perspective that Congressman Smith, I, I think, sort of stands apart. As I said, that that's the, the very calm, cool, and collected uh, Republican stance. Uh, there are other members calling for, for bigger fights, even sooner than the debt limit uh, deadline next year, as soon as September 30th with the government funding measure. Uh, Rick, I'm curious what you make when somebody like Congressman Smith says, look, the reality is we have to talk about mandatory spending, the two big parts of mandatory spending spending or Social Security and Medicare. Uh, the congressman did not think that he was saying something terribly unpopular on the point he made about Medicare Advantage. But do you how much political risk do you see if Republicans go back to really focusing on calling for those mandatory spending cuts, Rick? Yeah, I think that'll be a really incredible fight. Um, you know, the, the public has been sort of uh, uh, imbued with this sense that there's an unlimited supply of health care dollars coming out of Washington, whether it's been for these entitlements or for battling COVID. Uh, when you look at the trillions of dollars that have passed through in the last few years around healthcare, uh, starting really with the Obamacare uh, legislation, uh, it, it's just something that people have gotten used to having, right? Now this is a, uh, a situation where uh, realistically, I think, uh, uh, level-headed guys like Roger or like uh, Adrian Smith, uh, uh, I had to say level-headed because everyone else has today, um, uh, really wants to dial back some of this. We can't let government completely be taken over by entitlement spending, but uh, finding a counterparty, finding other people within his own party to have right. a serious conversation is going to be increasingly difficult as we get to the elections. And, and then the outcome, as Roger says, will determine whether or not he's looking for partners in the majority or the minority. 
Right. Another, uh, I guess, more immediate point on health care uh, and the cost of health care. Uh, pretty big news today. The FDA decided to allow hearing aids to be sold over the counter without a prescription. Uh, Brian Deese, the director of the National Economic Council, uh, discussed this today on Bloomberg TV on Balance of Power. Uh, here's, here, here's what he had to say about that announcement. Starting this fall, you're going to be able to go into a pharmacy and buy hearing aids over the counter. That means a lot cheaper hearing aids. You could see hearing aids for a pair of those hearing aids come down on average by almost $3,000 a pair. Roger, I, I'm curious. I almost see this as, you know, Democrats saying we have had our major legislative victories now. Uh, there were members who wanted hearing aids and vision and dental to be covered under Medicare as part of that major bill. That got uh, pulled out. Uh, is this a, a strategy of uh, agencies and executive orders trying to fill in the gaps on other key priorities? What do you make of this, uh, this news today on hearing aids? It's it's great news. I think more hearing means more, you know, communication and ideally more communications means more understanding. Had had this been uh, generated in a vacuum or at least within just the confines of the Biden administration, I would get the premise of your question. But I'm inspired by Congressman Smith. So let me see if I can if I can try to match his tone. The 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 FDA um, allowing this to happen actually came about from legislation filed by Senator Warren and Grassley. So first, take a second to think about that and then signed by President Trump. So um, it actually predates the Biden administration. And I think it's just it, it, it came along at a, at a good time. But right. to, to, to leap ahead to talk about Medicare Part D or Advantage, which was started under the Bush administration, so much of our health care costs are kind of these archaic barriers uh, that, for example, in the hearing aid thing, didn't allow people to get them without a prescription in, in the Medicare Part D context. Right. Um, wouldn't allow the federal government to to negotiate bulk purchases. So clearing the decks of these things is a good thing. Right. Coming up, we're going to talk to Jen DeLuey at Bloomberg News about this fascinating story on Bill Gates's role in that bill passing. This is Bloomberg. Really interesting story on the Bloomberg Terminal today titled Bill Gates Quietly Campaigned to Save Biden's Climate Bill. That's by Akshat Rathi and Jennifer A. DeLuey. Uh, Bill Gates isn't even the the beginning and end of the story. It's a a really interesting mix of characters. Gates, Larry Summers, uh, people from the National Wildlife Federation, economists from the University of Chicago, uh, etc. For more, we're bringing in Jen DeLuey. Uh, who helped write that piece. Uh, And first, let's actually play a clip uh, of what Bill Gates had to say about how this all came together in an interview with Akshat Rathi. Here's Bill Gates. You know, maintaining that dialogue, uh, including in the last month where people felt like, okay, we tried, we're done, it failed. And, you know, because I believed it was a unique opportunity, my trying to bridge the communication gap and encourage people to make one more effort because of the relationship we'd built up over time, you know, we were able to talk even at a time when he felt people weren't listening. You know, I wouldn't have wanted to be in his position. 
So, uh, Jen, uh, very happy to have you on. This is a, a really interesting story. The first question I have when I hear comments like that, uh, Bill Gates saying, it, it sounds like he, he was almost trying to give people a pep talk, saying, don't give up yet. I'm curious, what exactly did Joe Manchin need to hear uh, to keep these talks going? Was it encouragement? Was it something from economists saying this will be disinflationary? Was uh, were, were people twisting his elbow? Was it the carrot or the stick? What needed to happen and did happen when all of these other characters got involved and and tried to communicate uh, between people like Chuck Schumer and Joe Manchin? Right. Well, really, uh, really, in those final days after July 14th, when Manchin essentially slammed the brakes on what would become the Inflation Reduction Act, there were a lot of there was a lot of encouragement going toward a lot of folks, and 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 that includes uh, to, to Senator Schumer, um, but but uh, obviously huge pressure and and uh, conversations were being had and mounted on uh, Senator Manchin. Uh, he he felt uh, both uh, a great deal of rage uh, from from colleagues and from many activists who felt like you know the uh, rug had been pulled out from them uh, beneath them on this bill. Uh, you know, one of his colleagues mused that he shouldn't necessarily have his gavel as the head of the Energy Committee anymore. Um, so he had that pressure at, at the same time that he was hearing from a, a lot of advocates who've been working with him for 18 months, uh, you know, trying to to, to help him uh, understand that the value of, of uh, such a sweeping bill to West Virginia, where, you know, coal miners, uh, you know, a source of income and source of vitality and jobs is, is diminishing. Mm-hmm. Uh and, uh, and he was able to talk with those folks. We saw a, a real effort um, by uh, uh, Colin O'Mara at the National Wildlife Federation and by uh, fellow senators, including Senator Chris Coons, to get economists in front of Joe Manchin to, to really walk through his inflation concerns and, and talk to him about how the bill would actually have a deflationary impact. All of this was in the final week and a half, really, uh, to, to get him to a place where he could support and inv- indeed unveil this legislation with Chuck Schumer. Right. So is it that bad? The neg- I, 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 Look, I don't mean to be negative when they just had this major victory and it's signed into law, but is the working relationship between Chuck Schumer and uh, Joe Manchin so negative that then they need the marriage counselor of Bill Gates, and, and Chris Coons needs to get Larry Summers to talk to Joe Manchin. Uh, why was it more effective to have these other middlemen rather than negotiations directly among senators yielding the results? Yeah, a great question. I, you know, clearly, uh, Senator Manchin and Senator Schumer spent a great deal of time together working on this legislation. Manchin described it, you know, uh, kind of uh, uh, some very heated moments between the two of them. Uh, and uh, where Schumer could speak eloquently perhaps about certain elements of the bill, but Manchin w- was clearly going to um, confer more authority on the voice of economists, such as you know former Treasury Secretary Larry Summers, one of the folks who was an emissary talking to him during this two-week period. Um, uh, clearly, there were other outside voices who could be dispositive in a way that senators, uh, uh, some of his colleagues, just couldn't be. And, and that includes real voices from on the ground in West Virginia, you know, the head of a, a solar uh, company, the head of a steel company, uh, both were involved. Uh, you also had miners in his state and mining interests and labor interests coming to him and saying, look, we really need the worker protections in this bill. We need the black lung disability uh, trust fund uh, funded through this bill. So that all really was important. And those were voices and, and arguments he wasn't going to hear just from uh, Majority Leader Schumer. 
So would it have happened without Bill Gates stepping in? I'm, I'm curious if there was any other way. Uh, you know, I think Bill Gates is, uh, is maybe an example of uh, all of the voices right, and right. the uh, folks who intervened here, without which this probably would not have happened. So, you know, maybe you could take one or two of them out of the equation, but it was the cumulative effect of so many important and powerful stakeholders talking to Manchin, having trust both ways with him, and, and really persistently and doggedly working on this over the last year and a half. I have been curious throughout all of these negotiations how much of the Manchin focus was really entirely about Manchin, or if maybe he at some times was saying no to things on behalf of other senators who might not have wanted all the tax measures. What have we learned about how pivotal Joe Manchin singularly was in these negotiations? You know, I think uh, I think it's hard to, to diminish uh, the incredible role uh, that he uh, played in, in negotiating this final legislation. Clearly, other senators, uh, including Cinema, had concerns with aspects of this bill. And, and I think we're still going to learn a great deal more about the way this came together. I think, you know, books are going to be written about this, and we're going to learn a great deal more about the, the, the last two years of negotiations. Uh, you know, but clearly, he wasn't alone in having some of these concerns. And at times, uh, he just happened to be the, the lightning rod attracting the most attention. Okay, so before we go, is are there books we read? Is it going to be your book? Are you writing <laughs> it? Of, <laughs> I'm looking forward to reading them. Uh, we'll, we'll go to the panel next. Roger Fisk and Rick Davis. I'm Jack Fitzpatrick. This is Bloomberg. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common... It's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On on Bloomberg Radio. 
Pat Cipollone, the former White House counsel and his deputy from the Trump administration, both interviewed by the FBI. This is in the investigation into documents that were stored at Mar-a-Lago, the Florida estate of former President Donald Trump, uh, some of which, some of those documents were marked top secret with the uh, highest level of the SEI clearance. So I want to discuss this before we get into all the elections today with the panel. Let's bring in Roger Fisk, an Obama alum, uh, Obama administration alum, who's president of New Day Strategy, as well as Bloomberg Politics contributor Rick Davis. Guys, it, it just seems to be a daily drip, drip, drip. We were talking about how we could practically guarantee there'd be some sort of Trump legal news that drops during the show. This came. Uh, this was published by ABC News just a few minutes ago. Uh, I, my initial reaction is Pat Cipollone, when the January 6th stuff came up in the January 6th committee, he was somebody who pointed, uh, who pushed against uh, what he considered the errant voter fraud claims by uh, former President Trump. Rick, would you imagine that as it relates to the storage of top secret documents, Cipollone must have uh, pushed back against this? Or what is the significance, do you think, uh, in terms of the interview? Uh, Pat Cipollone and uh, Pat Philbin, both interviewed by the FBI. Yeah, I I think it's a really fascinating report because it indicates what we really don't know about this investigation. I mean, this investigation really came into the public uh, uh, eyes during one of our earlier shows, um, you know, uh, during the the search of uh, Mar-a-Lago. And since then, we've been getting a drip, drip, drip of information about you know potential grand juries and what the affidavit says and 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 uh, we've just been learning in real time <clears throat> what the impact of this is going to be. I, I I gotta believe that everything we've seen of of Pat Cipollone is that he's been a cautious and and concerned uh, counsel in the White House who had the responsibility for the transition of these documents to the archives and he probably did everything he thought was in his uh, abilities to do and. Uh, it'll be fascinating to learn someday if we can whether or not he even knew that these documents were taken out of the White House and and, and ensconced down in uh, Mar-a-Lago. So uh, I got to believe his side of this story is going to be probably vanilla, this is how we handled it at the White House. And then there was a whole other side of the story, which is what Donald Trump did in his last-minute packing and and scurrying off to uh, Florida. Yeah, you you wonder, this seems like such a serious issue that they're investigating. There must have been numerous failures, uh, or maybe one person, the former president, uh, putting some stuff in a bag on his way out. I don't know. That's what that's what I do when I move. I, I don't know what ends up in what box. <laughs> um, uh, let's talk elections. And I, I think we've got to start, of all the elections that are happening today, some really interesting primaries and a special election, we've got to start with Congresswoman Liz Cheney and her re-election. Uh, the polls that have come out do not look good. She faces uh, Harriet Hageman, who's the Trump anointed challenger in the Republican race for the uh, Republican nomination in Wyoming. Let's play some sound from Liz Cheney's ad, uh, her latest ad, just to get a, a sense of exactly what she's campaigning on. Here's Congresswoman Cheney's latest ad. No matter how long we must fight, this is a battle we will win. Millions of Americans across our nation, Republicans, Democrats, independents, stand united in the cause of freedom. We are stronger, more dedicated, and more determined than those trying to destroy our republic. This is our great task, and we will prevail. I hope you will join me in this fight. 
So you usually don't hear a member of Congress uh, doing a campaign ad in their Republican primary calling on Republicans, Democrats, and independents in this uh, valiant effort. But there is the idea that maybe Democrats and independents will register and vote in this uh, this Republican primary. Uh, Roger, what are the chances of not Republicans but Democrats and independents saving Liz Cheney? in this primary? Well, I think her problem is just mathematical, right? I don't think there's enough Democrats in Wyoming to do that. Um, but, it, but it is interesting. And, and, you know, what I my takeaway from it is you can kind of see and hear her looking past uh, this election, you know, to, to, to weave together some of our thematic strands here and, and to build on, on your discussion with Congressman Smith and how I mentioned he was a little bit of a welcomed throwback. I remember in the Clinton impeachment how, you know, these these very lofty speeches about how you can't lie. And the GOP's message to President Clinton was you can't lie. And now the GOP's message to Liz Cheney, Cheney is you must lie. You must embrace this this big lie about 2020. And that's extremely troubling. And I think she looks at that and she realizes she might have a lane to not necessarily win national office, but certainly play some kind of a torpedo role. And I think she would really enjoy playing it. Yeah, not necessarily about winning is my takeaway here. Using the phrase, destroy our republic, it seems like she's going for something bigger and broader than re-election. Rick, I I, I guess it's one question to say, does she know she's going to lose and she wants to make a stand anyway? But also, is there something else she's gunning for? Is it going to be a super PAC that she sets up or a nonprofit or does she run for president or, or I mean, what what is she preparing for? Well, I, I think the, the first thing that you've pointed out, Jack, is that she hasn't actually been running for reelection. She hasn't mm-hmm. been talking to the people <clears throat> of Wyoming about inflation and and the rampant spending in Congress and the impact it's going to have on their taxes. And I mean, these would be normal things that uh, a typical House member would would say to their state in this case. Uh, and she hasn't done that. She from the very get go said my reelection is going to be all about Donald Trump and keeping him from ever being in the Oval Office again. And, and she stuck true to that. Every ad she's produced, every, even with her father, uh, it's all been about Donald Trump. And so she's effectively used this platform uh, to basically say, look, I, I know I'm probably not going to win reelection, probably uh, don't even want to try. I'm going to try and defeat Donald Trump and any, any ambitions he has in the future. And I have absolutely no doubt we should watch her speech um, tonight, uh, if we can stay up that late and, and, and see what she says, because I think like what Roger was saying, listen to what she says. She will give us an idea, even though she won't lay out in full form what she's going to do next. She will give us an idea. Uh, and my guess is that idea is she's going to continue the fight that she's waging against Donald Trump, however it manifests itself. Uh, yeah, look, Western, uh, that's a, a Western time zone in Wyoming. So if you're planning to stay up late for the uh, results, although on the other hand, I, this seems like a race they may uh, they may call early. If, if we're all correct and the polling is correct, that it's not going to be a terribly close race. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if she gives uh, a concession speech that is not conceding the broader point. A uh, couple other interesting races to talk about 
today. Uh, one, you see the Sarah Palin race, the, the possibility of Sarah Palin winning the House race. It's a bit convoluted because this is for Don Young's seat, the late Don Young, who died earlier this year. This is a special election. Uh, she will also be running for the full term. And if it's not confusing enough that she's kind of running twice at once, uh, this is Alaska's new system of ranked choice voting. Uh, for one, I, I'm wondering how long we have to wait for the results because of, of ranked choice voting. Uh, and we don't necessarily know who the favorite is. Palin uh, faces, uh, she, she beat Nick Begich in, in the uh, Republican primary in this special election. Uh, Roger, one, what are your expectations for the possibility of Congresswoman Sarah Palin? And two, am I right in thinking that even though the, the votes are cast and they're starting to count tonight, it could be a, a while before we know what happens in that race? Yeah, I think that I think that's accurate. And then to speak to her chances, I mean, somebody always beats nobody for the most part, although there's some exceptions. Eric Cantor losing, you know, while he was uh, majority whip and things like that. But I think she comes into it with a with an incredible name recognition and, and a brand. And that brand, probably in the Alaskan context, probably has a decent amount of momentum behind it because of uh, this this perception that the that the Republicans are on the march, even though, as I mentioned earlier, I think that's less and less true every day. But I would I would imagine she's feeling pretty good. So uh, regardless of whether they end up in the majority or the minority, Rick, where does Sarah Palin fit into the House Republican conference if she wins today's House Republican conference? And what does it say about how that conference operates in the next Congress if Sarah Palin is part of it? Yeah, that'll be an interesting question if she uh, gets through this process, uh, both now and in the final uh, uh, vote for the the next term. And 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 I think she might find herself actually less conservative or less, I would say, uh, uh, extreme than a lot of the caucus that's uh, that's going to show up there after this election, because there will be a lot of new members in the House caucus, and 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 they're likely to be very big Trump. Uh, supporters and and probably much more along the lines of conspiracy theorists than she's been. Um, not to diminish her uh, her right. her move to the right uh, uh, since she was on the ticket with John McCain, but um, the reality is a lot of these people uh, believe things that 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 Sarah Palin probably is going to have to really question whether or not she wants to be a part of that class. Right. And, and Rick, I'm, I'm curious, especially as a, a former John McCain guy, uh, Lisa Murkowski, wh what are the expectations for her primary? I think that's another big one to look forward to tonight. Well, she is the ultimate survivor, right? I mean, she's uh, arguably out of step with the Republicans in Alaska, but she seems to uh, do really well with everybody else. So my, my guess is she'll survive another near-death experience politically. Another one that's tough to predict in this strange new system of Alaska races. Thanks again to our guests, including Congressman Adrian Smith, Jen DeLuey, and the panel. I'm Jack Fitzpatrick. This is Bloomberg. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. 
Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more.